Hi, I'm Adam Phillips, and I love comics. Sure, I love superhero comics, but I also love comics that are funny, or romantic, or educational, or even kind of filthy. Some have been around for decades, but I have a special place in my heart for the ones that came and went in the blink of an eye. We call them one-shots, and some of them you may have heard of, while others might make you ask, why? This is One-Shot Wonders. Okay, today we have a very cool episode with a great guest star. I'm really excited to have him here, Chris Duffy, who is a longtime comics editor. He uh, worked down the hall from me at DC Comics as an assistant editor way back. He worked on the Bizarro Comics two-volume anthology, which is coming out at the end of July as a single book, and he wrote a lot of the interstitial material in there. I'm very excited about that. Chris was the comics editor at Nickelodeon Magazine, the beloved Nickelodeon Magazine, I should say, <laughs> for over a decade, and the editor of the long-running SpongeBob SquarePants comics from United Plankton. He also edited some graphic novels for First Second and wrote the graphic novel history comics, The Wild Mustang, Horses of the American West. Yes. And how you're an editor at uh, Workman Press? Uh, yeah, Workman Publishing is the is Workman the Publishing. Yeah. I was going to ask you, actually, since you're an editor there, are there any projects that are current or recently announced or whatever that you could tell us about that you are the editor of? Uh, sure. Well, I'm, I'm very excited to be working with Ellen Forney, who is a cartoonist yeah. of some renown. She did a, a book called Marbles that won a lot of awards, rightfully so. I don't remember the awards, about uh, being bipolar. Mm. It's a great comic. Strangely enough, by from that description, she's really funny, and she's doing a book for kids about how to draw comics. And a lot of it is in comics form, and there's just a lot of activities. Anyway, that's that's one thing I'm really excited about. But, oh, that's very cool. Yeah, I remember, didn't she do like a comic about Led Zeppelin or something? Yeah, she does a lot of nonfiction comics, and she put them all together in a big book called I Love Led Zeppelin, which is a, a title for any, because it's like every every page was like a completely different topic. Yeah, really cool yeah. stuff. Great. So today we are going to talk about a one-shot comic called Tales from the Tomb, issue number one and only, <laughs> um, which was published by Dell Publishing. Del. Yep, it was Dell. And it went on sale August 1st, 1962. And it was written by the great John Stanley. And Chris, do you want to tell us a little about John Stanley for anyone who's not familiar with this man's work? Absolutely. And I really hope that Anybody who doesn't will will look into it. He's worth digging into. And please interrupt me at any time if you want to add more facts. For sure. John Stanley was, I think, somebody you would you would call a some people would have called like a hack. <laughs> but in the in the in the most positive way possible, I mean that. Uh he produced a, a tremendous amount of scripted and uh, scripted work and artwork for Dell Publishing in the uh, early 40s through, through well, actually through the six, all the way through 1967. Mm -hmm. And Dell sort of changed in the middle of that, but we'll talk about that later. He was, he sort of considered along with Walt Kelly and Carl Barks as being sort of the, the greatest of the sort of non-superhero cartoonists. I, I would consider him one of the best writers and cartoonists of, you know, 
the second half of the 20th century. Uh, yeah, and 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 it, specifically, he got famous because in 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 the mid 40s. So he'd been doing lots of licensed comics, and he had a great run. They uh, on lots of different titles with obscure animation characters, usually, and he was sort of one of their top script guys, uh, and also drew most of his stories at that point. And the editor of Dell uh, on the, on the East Coast set him up as uh, being the guy who was going to write the Little Lulu comics because they get the license to Little Lulu, which was a one-panel comic that ran in, I forget what magazine. Saturday Evening Post? Yeah, that sounds right. So, or Collier's. I don't know why that's coming to mind. You know, she was the cartoonist. Marge Buell was, is the she I just referred to. And she couldn't draw a comic book because a comic book is a tremendous amount of work. So as with most licensed comics, they, you know, they, they, they got a creative team. But in this case, it was... Stanley writing and drawing the first several years of a little Lulu comic. And uh, it sold incredibly well, uh, mostly thanks to his translation of sort of, you know, a snarky, but very entertaining one panel comic to sort of like this now legendary sort of portrayal of American small towns. He quickly stopped drawing it when he started, when it became a full fledged series but the guy who took over drawing it used a lot of Stanley's uh, layouts to to tell the stories. And it sort of created this like almost Charlie Brown, like neighborhood universe, but it was a lot more physical action, a lot of, a lot of slapstick a, and a lot of like writing himself into a corner with incredible <laughs> turns. Right. Um, and you know, and I think what he became most famous for was Little Lulu and supporting characters that he sort of added to, you know, gave them a lot of the names, gave them a life. And by the, like, by the 50s, he'd created not only just these great stories, but, like, he had Little Lulu, who was a great sort of every every girl character who'd never put up with any guff from any boys who tried to exclude them her from their uh, from their clubhouse. But then there are all these tropes and characters. There was Tubby, who was sort of her the boy she was most often interacting with, who was just kind of an egotist and a dreamer and a and a weirdo, but sort of weirdly harmless too. He always reminds me of uh, Wimpy from Popeye. He's a force of nature in the same yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. and, and a catalyst. You know, he just like yes. You know, it, whenever there's a, a story concept, if you insert Tubby, stuff's gonna go off the rails oh yeah he's kind of up there i feel like you're right with uh with wimpy and with uh mr o'malley yes in in that they're all sort of a little bit off in their perspective of the world but very driven towards this kind of incoherent vision (laughs) (laughs) and and in fact uh stanley went on to do to uh do a spinoff comic with tubby and it had a completely different tone it was much more like fantasy, uh, fantasy driven. Although what, one of the great things he did with Little Lulu is he, he, every issue, you know, these were sometimes with Dell. I think they were sometimes fifty-six page comic books. Yeah, they were big. Some of yeah, them. and he was scripting and laying out like one a month. And but it wasn't just you know one big story or two big stories. He also just had all these features, and one of them was Little Lulu's uh, dreams. I'm uh, not dreams. It was Little Lulu's diary. stories she tells to. Yeah, well, the diary. Was oh, oh that, I, I seriously, I'm sorry. Right, 
there were Alvin. She would tell stories to this little boy, Alvin, who was a real brat. And it was always be to get him to do something he was supposed to do, like come out of a tree or go to bed. And Lulu would tell him a story that and they, they're just amazing sort of fantasy. Anything goes. He drew Nancy later in his life. And a lot of people say like, well, he wasn't really the same kind of writer as Ernie Bushmiller. So it's weird. But and he wasn't as surreal. But in these sure. fantasy stories that she told Alvin, it's just wonderful transformations of you know of ordinary objects and you know like a little girl with a giant head or like a clouds a story of a cloud floating around mm-hmm. um they're really they're really brilliant stuff so anyway that's who john stanley is and i think he became most famous really because he was discovered by fandom and people figured out like he wrote all of the little lulu stories from 45 to 59 essentially yeah there was this great time in like the 70s, I want to say, where fans who are running conventions put a lot of time and effort into finding some of the old-timey guys who had yeah. dropped out of doing comics or never and never had their names in the comics. Yeah. And they did all, all this detective work and figured out where they were, brought them to conventions, and these guys like Carl Barks and John Stanley got all these, you know, accolades, got to appear on panels and things like that. And John Stanley in particular, like Carbox did a bunch of conventions, I believe, and yes. sort of got used to that world. And I don't think John Stanley ever got used to it in a way. You know, he was flabbergasted by the whole thing. There's a really great biography of Stanley yes. that was put out by uh, Fanographics by uh, Bill Shelley, who unfortunately is no longer with us. Great guy, and, a, and it's a wonderful book. And according to him, Stanley basically went to one convention – and never went to another <laughs> and yeah. had a very, very off again, on again correspondence with fans. It didn't, he seemed suspicious of the whole thing. And he, he had a funny career that way, especially later in his career when they talk about in the book. And by yeah. the way, anyone who needs, who wants to read some great biographies of comics legends, Bill Shelley's books are the best. They're so good. Yeah. Um, unbelievable. But, yeah. You know, he did, John Stanley did like, in the late sixties, uh, one picture book for kids. And it looks right. like it could have been great, but he just didn't do another one. No, it's like that, that could have been his, you know, his second act. Yeah. It, 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 it did seem like he, you know, he had some personal problems. He, I think he had yeah. an alcohol problem. I think he, he had a temper probably linked to the alcohol. You know, I, I think it, he was a pretty intense guy and his second act was working in a, in a, in a ruler factory, actually in the town where I currently live, which is basically the area that Stanley had lived in for mm-hmm. a very long time, you know, a little Hudson River town. And so this sort of leads me to the dark side of Stanley, <laughs> like of yeah. his work, I mean, not not the man. Right. Well, so I was going to say, and I agree with you, this is a good segue time, but um, that, you know, we get to the early 1960s and sure. there's big a big shift with Western publishing and Dell and all that where – Yep. Some of this, if you want to tell tell it, go ahead. Yeah, basically it's it's really confusing, but let's just say yeah. there were two publishing companies that worked together for a long time that made Dell comics, which were very successful comics for families and kids that did not have superheroes for the most part, from the forties through the through the fifties. And they these two companies teamed up. One was Western, which yep. was owned a printing plant and but also had a lot of contacts in animation and stuff and did some publishing of their own. And Dell Comics, uh, Dell Publishing, which was a book publisher, 
that got into the comics business. From what can I, I can understand, it's like Bell, Dell paid for it and Western did the editorial uh, and, and did the printing. I don't really know. Something like that, yeah. And eventually the business deal, you know, sort of went in such a way that they, Western decided to, de- to defect from the partnership and took most of the successful titles with them. And Dell decided to stay in comics and, you know, decided to try to get new licenses uh, and also get a lot of new new titles going. So in 1961, the people who were left in charge of yeah. the company kind of said to John Stanley, what can you do for us now? Because yep. the, he wasn't going to write Little Lulu anymore, but nope. they were aware of what a creative force he was and how inventive he was. And I mean, yeah, I mean, Lulu had been like one really, really successful for them. They made a lot of money off of Lulu. And so even though Lulu went off with Western, Stanley was considered by, um, oh, I forget the woman who was in charge of Dell. That's really terrible. I've got it right here. Oh, you do? Good. Okay. I got that book here. Okay. Helen Mayer. Yeah. Or Meyer. She, she's supposed, I mean, we're all just quoting Bill Shelley here, but basically yeah. she offered Stanley you know, he could edit all the comics and write them all. And I don't think, I think he lasted like three months or something doing that. Right. But, but they did let him basically create a lot, you know, a whole line of John Stanley comics. Yeah. He still didn't own anything. This was all still all, everything was work for hire. Although apparently according to Bill, he was pushing for uh, ownership, but didn't, didn't get very far. No. Um, and then he, so in, in one year in 61, he created, let's see, he created books like, he created a teen comic, 13 going on 18, uh, a sort of a sort of neighborhood urban comic that seemed like a throwback called Around the Block with Duncan Liu, mm-hmm. a soap opera comic called Linda Stark, Student Nurse, and yeah, go ahead. I would just say Linda, uh, Linda Locke. Yeah. You said Linda Stark. <laughs> oh, oh, I did? Okay, right. And, and he also did another nurse comic at some point. Uh, yeah. And then there's, and then there's, um, he did something called Kooky, which I've never read, but I think was about a waitress in a Greenwich Village setting. Right. And 13 Going on 18 has been collected and is really worth reading. It is. It, it's pretty fantastic. And especially those short stories in the back with Judy. Oh, dear God, Judy. Oh, Judy, Judy Jr. Or... Judy Jr., excuse me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's sort of a terror. She's an unbelievable... Yeah, and there's a few of those that just feel like, I mean, so I, I don't I don't really know how to say this without coming off as pretentious, but like when you read some of his stories, especially some of the Judy Juniors, certainly a lot of the Lulus, and certainly what we're going to talk about today, and you feel like here's a guy who really, in, in many ways, sort of embodies the auteur idea, which is <laughs> a lot of limitations, uh, a lot of oversight, and very anonymous, but boy, was he doing his own thing <laughs> that's interesting i have and, and and very pretentious but <laughs> but i was gonna say not not so much that as like I, I find this to be the case with a lot of creators who i enjoy it's like there's there comes a point where they're putting out so much material that they're sort of digging without awareness into their own subconscious and, and uh, like, yeah that is absolutely true of, of, of yeah. So there, there are some very weird, nightmarish images and situations in some of the little Lulu stories, in the Judy Jr. stories, for sure. Yep. 
you know, Judy, I mean, <laughs> you'd have to read Judy Jr. to to know, but it's just like she is uh, like a homunculus practically, you know? Uh-huh. She's right. She's a she's a little girl who just seems to have been created just to torture this one boy yeah. in her neighborhood, and she just fixates on him. She's a little bit like an insane cross between Tubby and Little Lulu in that she has mm. a very specific and stunted and sick worldview. <laughs> right? And so strange. Yeah, it's very they're very strange. Sometimes they really click. Sometimes they seem overly cruel. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely a you know a a, a personal vision uh, yeah. of of some kind of terror for sure. Yeah. Um yeah. so then these books a couple of them lasted long, you know, like 13 going on 18 lasted a little longer. Until the late the, 60s, I was surprised to see. Yeah. Yeah. But most of them didn't last very long. And then he got asked to do a couple of other things. And one of them is this Tales from the Tomb that we really came here to talk about today. Yep. Along with John Stanley himself, who's worthy of a lot of discussion, of course. But Tales yeah. from the Tomb was a 25-cent cover price, 80-page comic plus covers with a lot of material in. Real lot of material. Yeah, you know, you can't believe there's one more story every time you turn the page. It's Yeah, I mean, I don't know, from what I can tell, and I haven't, you know, I've read uh, a, a little bit more material about Stanley. There's there's a great website, Stanley Stories. Do you know the, the website I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't looked at it in a long time. Frank, Frank Young, yeah, yeah. So Frank, so there's a great website. I've read, I've looked into the, Frank Young website, and I looked into the Michael uh, Barrier's book, um, Funny Funny Books, which mm-hmm. has a lot of material on Stanley, a lot of research. I can't figure out why this book was published. You know, there's no, <laughs> there's no, Tales of the Tomb does not have an origin story that, you know, except that maybe horror still a pub, was still a viable, you know, although, yeah, there is something really interesting about horror at this point, which is that Del... Dell could do horror, but none of the other publishers that had done horror previously could really because sure. they had all signed into the comics code. And Dell, because it was such a family-friendly publisher, could still do – they could do an adaptation of Dracula, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Marvel and DC couldn't because you weren't supposed to have the undead. Uh, I think that maybe is a little bit exaggerated because I've certainly seen – vampire stories but maybe those were pre-code well okay so a couple things i want to mention here one is at this point the twilight zone and alfred hitchcock presents were still very very big hits on tv Ah, so you know comics wanted to follow that and that's something i talked about in a previous episode a little bit in the my alfred hitchcock episode and also like marvel you're right they couldn't marvel and dc couldn't do outright horror and this veers much closer to that than House of Secrets or Strange Tales, but they still were appealing to that audience to some degree. You know, I mean, House of Secrets or one of those DC titles did have a sense of mystery and and foreboding and stuff like that. You know, so they had their version, but th- this goes much further. Yeah, I mean, what this book? First of all, it's huge. It's eighty pages, which I I don't know if that was standard at the time. Well, they had DC had the eighty page giants, uh, which are twenty five cents. Okay, okay. I just looked that up earlier. <laughs> ah, good to know. So yeah, it's it's um, it doesn't have an an origin, but you know the, the the two things I know about this in regards to John Stanley's career is that 
it was said to have sold very, very well. Mm. But the, it also, they got more complaints about this than almost anything they had done. And that, I guess, is a third fact. And that Stanley was very pleased that there were a lot of complaints. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. So why don't we talk about some of the stories? Yeah, let's do give it. Give people um, an idea of what we're getting into here. So yeah, no, I could, you're right. I could set up for like a hundred years. Well, there's, <laughs> there's plenty to talk about. Yeah. So like Tales from the Tomb, I'll start with what it's not. You know, it's got like a, a, a ghoul coming out of a grave and sort of signal, you know, gesturing to the reader, like come with me. And you sort of imagine an easy sort of like, you know, spooky voice to uh, a narrator with some, you know, sort of gothic tales is not that at all. No. Nope. Um, it's, it, you know, some of them sort of veer into the old fashioned and gothic a little bit or stick their nose there, but it feels very modern. It feels more like Twilight Zone or, or Alfred Hitchcock. For the most part, you know, it's it's um, like the first story, which I was really impressed with it this time. I've read it a couple of times. Mr. Green Must Be Fed. Great title. Which, oh, <laughs> it is a good title. And it starts with a kid, you know, who's been hitchhiking. The truck driver he's he who's who's had had been driving him says, you know, hey, look, I'll take you into the nearest city. It's too late for you to, you know, just be on the road. I know there's a boarding house around here. And so, you know, he goes to this boarding house. And these two boarding house owners sort of fight over him. Uh, he yeah. ends up he go, ends up going with this this woman who's very persnickety and not persnickety, but but she's very she's very uh, sort of gracious and and you know a little bit prideful of how nice her house is. And um, she well, she is pers- she is persnickety though because she's sort of saying like, good thing you didn't go with that other guy. His yeah. house is a mess. A man right. cleaning his own house. It's got to right. be terrible. Right. Right. And, and and the kid thinks it's kind of funny. She says, oh, you know, you, I think he says, like, you, you know, I feel bad I made you come in here or something. Oh, no, he, she's grateful that he chose her house. And so she says, I'm not going to charge you. It's, it's so weird. She kind of goes like, clearly, you just don't have money. I can tell they're just looking at you. <laughs> like, okay. Right. Right. Which is kind of true. I mean, except he's not really drawn that way, but it's sort of like, yeah, he was a kid on the road. So he probably looks like. Crap. Um, but the um, and she brings in this this carpet this with with this like a red and red and yellow striped throw rug basically. Right. She puts it next to his bed. Oh, you know, I just took some stains out of this. She throws it down next to it, and from there on, the story gets so weird. Um, <laughs> in a way that you know, and this is true of a lot of Stanley stuff that almost like. A child is telling the story. Yes. It's also true of one of his classic horror stories that isn't in this book, but we'll talk about that later, maybe. Mm. So the, uh, the kid's going to bed. And I say kid, but he's a young man. Uh, and he th- and, and his book falls off the side of his bed. It falls onto the carpet. And suddenly there's this, like, green sort of slimy explosion <laughs> with, a, with a snap sound effect. Uh, uh, slime explosion is a word that should exist, <laughs> and and you know it's a little it's a little strange, but Stanley is known for sound effects and you know single word exclamations, sort of driving a story, like especially "yow," people yelling "yow," yeah, uh, is a trademark. This thing, so there's a green smoke that sort of comes out of the carpet afterwards, like you know, sort of like the explosion's over. The kids 
suddenly the the landlady screaming from the outside of the room and just says like you know did you get him mr green um <laughs> she, she says, oh dear mr and then the kid yells back you know what was that mrs whitley and then mrs whitley says oh dear mr green must have missed well so much the worse for you harry now mr green will have to come out after you <laughs> yeah and this this horrible slimy reptilian looking monster kind of comes up out of the carpet of that little rug and tries to you know get this kid yeah no and it's like it is a really strange looking creature it's it's hand is this sort of froggy claw thing <laughs> uh and the kid throws a blanket over it and then, then there's sort of a lot of fussing around in the house as the kid he he sort of figures out from what mrs whitley's yelling through the door that the, that the rug is oh no he knows what the rug does but he's he's figured out that mr green can't stay out of the carpet for that long mm-hmm. so the kid is really smart the windows have been barred by this murderous woman and he smashes he uses the carpet puts the carpet over his fist smashes the window and throws the carpet out the window <laughs> and so mr green this giant frog thing jumps through the bars, breaks them and go and, and, and uh, to get to the carpet because he apparently has to be back in it pretty quickly mm-hmm. from there. I'm not going to go over the rest of it, but basically there's a, there's a, there's one more victim <laughs> of the, of the carpet. Mr. Green has been fed by the end of the story. And then it just ends with a kid going off with a, with a cop who's like, you know, Oh, you must be drunk. Come with me. Kid. <laughs> well, she implies that he was drinking. That's true, right? So that she can say that's why there was a ruckus. Yeah, but and so the cop, yeah, the cop takes the kid away, and yeah. he's like almost glad to go. He yeah. says gladly, you know, when the cop says, "Come on, you can sleep it off at the station house." Yeah, it's such a weird story, and I'll tell you, this is a lot. This is the case. It works. This sort of structure can work better in a kids' comic where it's sort of sillier, but you know. It's a very rambling story. Like if you were editing this, you know, you don't need that whole opening with the truck. No, and he has he, and he has bits like that throughout this that sort of yeah. feel they sort of feel like those moments in the Twilight Zone where you're sort of like they gave some character actor a little bit of color, you know, mm. a scene to do where they're 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 joking around or or you know, they have a relationship with somebody that that in the uh, they're, they have a shared history or something and you kind of get bored and you're like, oh, come on, get, get on with the story. Um, <laughs> but, but it's, but it's also, I have to say it, it, the thing about Stanley that always gets me is that it's, it's, it's riveting. It yeah. is. He, he, there's no, there's almost no captions and he's not, that's one thing about Stanley. It's and, and, yeah. and this in particular, he really was bucking the trend in most horror comics, especially of no no narration at all, and it's just it feels where, very well blocked out. If Stanley always said he made it up as he went along, and you can you can believe it. Yes, it has a lot of you know really clever twists and turns, mm-hmm. and it's a pretty oppressive atmosphere. Like I feel like this city is abandoned. You know, <laughs> no, no, but I think that's that that feeling carries through to almost all these stories. Not yeah. like, you know. Yeah. It's very atmospheric. It's very dark and shadowy, and yep. you know, bad stuff happens to people who really don't earn it. Right, right. Uh, and and the world is pretty cruel. Is one yes. Of, you know, this woman gets away with it. You know, she's just 
She's going to clean up the carpet. It's got a few new stains on it. And, you know, she's still in business. Yeah, um, right. I don't know exactly what that business is. But... <laughs> well, she runs a boarding house. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> she doesn't charge people, apparently. Yeah. I know. It's like, what is she getting out of this relationship with Mr. Green is never established at all. Right. right, right. <laughs> Except yeah, it's yeah. it's like a competition between her and the guy next door, I guess. It's very weird. Right. Right. What happens if you go into the one next door? Maybe he's got his own. Uh, his, his own demon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about Stanley that, you know, we were talking about his dark side, it, it totally comes out in um, – a lot of the Tubby and Lulu stories and, and, and in a particularly nice nightmarish um, Raggedy Ann and Andy story that, that he told, but I won't get mm. into that here. The, but the Tubby story that this sort of reminds me of, and this whole book reminds me of is there's a great story about Tubby going out into a lake and I forget why. <laughs> and there's a haunted house uh, submerged in this lake and it rises up every night. Yeah. He goes into it and it and it goes back down under with him and they try to get him to sign his name to the register and then he'll be trapped there forever with all these other ghosts. Oh jeez. It <laughs> is terrifying. And it's got a great ending where Tubby he he actually manages to escape because when he signed his name, he spelled it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect, though. That's right. great. Yeah, because he's really not that bright. Um, <laughs> so um, let, let's take a look at a few of the other ones. I mean, because I like this next story a lot, Still Life. Yeah, and this one feels, again, this 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 feels like a precursor to, um, to Night Gallery almost. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is like a penthouse apartment where there's like a, I mean – this guy, he is a painter who just came back from holiday and he he's he's showing off the paintings he did while he was away to this young woman who lives downstairs from him. And you can't really tell, like, if they're flirting, what the relationship it is. You know what it if reminded me of? Yeah, what? Um, Artist models? <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Stewart and Barbara Belgettis in Vertigo. Oh, because they're never really... There's like flirting, but not really. She's an artist in Vertigo, and he's not. But they hang around in this sort of loft apartment of hers a lot while she's yeah. painting advertisements. Right, right. No, that's a good that's a, and I think maybe that was a thing at that time. Then you know the sort of well, I, you know, apartment. Yeah, exactly. And the bohemian lifestyle of an artist, you know, in the late fifties, yeah. early sixties. So um, he's, he comes back from. Yeah, his, he shows he shows her this this grim painting of apparently a gigantic stump that's dead um, and sort of like a, a tree that's sort of horribly uh, mangled and ripped at the top, you know, that's, it's dead. It's now a trunk. And then he goes into this long description of sort of his experience painting this. Um, <laughs> and it's all this off panel stuff. Like in a lot of comics, this would now be a flashback. Yeah. And, and cause he, but instead it's just him talking to this woman in his uh, room and gesturing and the camera angles change. But basically this was actually, you take this up. Cause I forget why the stump is there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, why the stump is there. You mean, he just sort of found it in on his vacation and thought, you know, I, I have to paint this somehow the scene so impressed me that I felt I had to paint it. So I set up my easel and guess what? It toppled over. 
the ease, the easel kept falling over. So there's some, something magical in the air that's, you know. Right. I mean, I, I just said this on the, my other podcast the, the other day, you know, New England is the spookiest part of the country, and he's experiencing it then. And that's where this, that's where this farm is. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then um, he, he he tells the he manages to paint it because he just puts the easel on his on his lap, I think. Right. And then instead of trying to uh, put it on a stand, then he um, he shows it to the farmer that he's staying with, and he's <laughs> horrified because he said basically people were hung from the tree during the Revolutionary War, mm-hmm. um, and there was a curse on the on this land that somehow really only extended to the ground right around this trunk. <laughs> so that, because there's, yeah. there's this trunk, I mean, there's this, there's this old dead trunk, but there's also like kind of a circle of just dead land where nothing's growing right. underneath it and tells this story. And, you know, the woman looks at it and is like, yeah, that stump is pretty horrifying. I can sort I believe <laughs> basically says, I believe the curse. Uh-huh. Um, and, but he wants to paint her. He wants to add a human figure to this. So right. she's got a she's got a date. Oh, sorry. For contrast, I was just going to say what's a funny. Oh, is that what he says? Right yes. for contrast. That's a, or for scale. Did he mean? No, no. I don't know. I, I'm gonna. He just says I'm going to paint a human figure in there to provide contrast. And I right. thought that was a funny concept in and of itself. You know. Right. A sprightly blonde would be perfect. Yeah. Uh, so she's got a date. So, but he says he'll wait up. So she should come up. First he says he can't wait till tomorrow night. He's going to figure it out and do something tonight. So she says she'll come back after right. the date. <laughs> and, yeah, I guess we should just give away the ending of this one because – Yeah, well, it's, it's a hard comic to find. <laughs> it's true. She comes up. She's like, you know, oh, I bet he's still waiting. But it's late. It's after 12. She goes up she, and she opens his door. It's open and – she says, "Oh, you went ahead and painted a figure, but why that?" And you don't see what she's seeing. It's you're sort of looking at her from the painting's point of view. She's getting closer and closer. And then, how could you've gotten anyone to model? And then she sort of looks up and screams. And in the the next page is a full panel, full page one, you know, splash page. She's fainted. She's fainted dead away. And you see that in the painting, off the one limb that sort of still exists on the stump. He has painted himself, the artist has painted himself hanging off the limb. Right. You know, hung like, you know, as in the legend. And then you see to his right, to the right of the painting, his legs dangling down. He apparently has hung himself from a rafter or, or, the, or, or, or something on the, on the ceiling. Yeah. And it's a, it's a great image. And it's, I don't know any story. I don't know any story that feels like this in comics. I'm sure no. in the world of horror comics, there have been similar, you know, things set up, you know, with haunted paintings, but I've never seen, you know, there's something so just straight on creepy. Like, unlike the last one, this one has one thing. Yeah. You know, it, it, it just inevitably leads to, to the, to its ending. But it is so strange to me because also because like the artist guy, I don't think they have any names. The artist, it seems very cheery through the entire time when he's talking to his friend about right. the, the curse and the, and he's like smiling and it doesn't seem to bother him. And then she comes back and he's hanged himself. It's like, no, oh, it's true. It's, it's very, 
I don't, I don't mean to overstate this because I don't know. If, I have no way of knowing it's true. It kind of reminds me of like Salinger stories mm. in in the, the is it nine stories? Yeah, yeah. Um, where everybody has PTSD basically from World War Two. <laughs> yeah, and and they're just very happy or wacky, and then they shoot themselves in the head. You know, it just it's one yeah. of those where you're like, what happened? Um, there's something unspoken. Yeah. I was just gonna say the one story I know of. I, I never read that book, but like in sleepaway camp when I was like fifth grade, yeah, the counselor read one of the stories to us, and it was I think it's called a fine day or a lovely day for, for banana, banana fish. fish. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I you know now I can remember that story just from him reading it well enough to go like, oh, that was really screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> right. What a thing to read to kids. Oh my god. Well. Yeah. It was a different time. <laughs> I guess. So I don't know if we can go through this entire book because there's a lot of stories. No, I think we should talk about some high points uh, of, yeah, please. Of, of weirdness. So, you know, there's some standard, I danced with a ghost sort of stories. Yep. There's an interesting story where that feels very Twilight Zone where a girl has a cat that the evil stepmother wants to get rid of. And sort of because of the evil stepmother, the cat gets run over, but then the cat because it has, it's part of the night. It sort of comes back as a monster. And it's good. It's the name of the story. The cat that was part of the night. Yeah, <laughs> it, is, it is the name of the story. And, and it sort of, you know, gets revenge on yeah. the, on the, on the stepmother. Although another interesting story where like the, the main visual weirdness is all off panel. It's all. Yes. You know, the, the, the little girl looking out the window and describing, saying like, oh, good, look, they're playing without the cat. stepmother. <laughs> one of the stories I thought was really bizarre, too, was uh, Two for the Price of One, it's called. The one with the guy who's trying to get a divorce from his wife. Oh, that's an amazing story. And so, and actually, I've read this story a million times. I finally figured out <laughs> what happened. But go ahead. You, you, you sell it. I don't know if I can. Uh, <laughs> you know, because... I mean, I only read this for the first time yesterday, but he's, yeah. I guess he's an actor. They're yeah. living in a crummy hotel for actors and she is sick of it. He has a wife and she's sick of living like this. Oh, no, wait, wait. Uh, sorry. He's talking to his girlfriend, excuse girlfriend. me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and explain to her how his wife will not give him a divorce. No way. And she's, you know, the girlfriend is sick of waiting and, and things. And he, you know, he says he's going to make it work and don't you worry. And uh, this great moment where he's walking out of the hotel through the lobby and there's these people are just hanging around the lobby talking about the time they played Lear. And I lost the part to a midget and all this. And it's like, Oh, there's this mid midget sitting on a couch and the guy who, you know, our hero, so to speak, right. Yeah, is looking at the pitching going like, my God, he looks just like me, but smaller. Right, right. <laughs> a dead, a dead ringer for me, facially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, oh, well, here he is. Walter Brin says, "My, you know, my name's Walter Brin." My and the midget guy says, "Mine's Al Low." Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, a lot of dumb names in this comic. Yeah, um, but it feels it feels like something someone would say in a in a cheesy flop house for actors you know yeah right yeah so um, walter offers to like hire him for a job and you know it's going to be a strange job but it'll be uh interesting and 
they, they agree that the midget is going to bring along another guy who's a midget, who's a friend, who right. will uh, have a part too. And wow, and what a what a plan oh they have God, in it's store. So bizarre. <laughs> it's like it's like a insane double indemnity or something. It's like yeah, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Like it's it's a plan that that shouldn't shouldn't work and that you can't really believe like it 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 um it ends up i don't know if we should get in, even into the weirdness of oh, you the, have to of the, of the butler but the um <laughs> that's right <laughs> so he he shows up at the at his at his wife's house his wife he really wants to divorce his wife she won't divorce him she knows he hates short people right so some this is something that's been said before and you don't really get it, but you figure the midgets had something to do with this plan, right? That, that, mm-hmm. that and because of her distaste for short men, um, but he's not a short man. And he shows up at her door, his wife's door. They're strange, but she won't divorce him. And he's wearing this ridiculous outfit. He's got like a red cap and <laughs> like a black and yellow. Is that a seersucker? I don't even know what to call that. Striped, striped uh, jacket. It's pretty right. ugly. <laughs> He jokes around with the with the with the poor butler and like shakes him and he's like, "You've aged." <laughs> and and uh, the butler takes it all completely stoically. The wife agrees to go for a, a drive with her strange husband, who's st- strangely acting romantic, just because she thinks it may amuse her. Meanwhile, the butler walks into his bedroom and picks up a voodoo doll <laughs> of the husband and. Uh, says, oh, this thing hasn't worked at all. And he's got this book called Encyclopedia of Witchcraft, and he just throws it on the voodoo doll. And you can see he's actually, if you look really close in the panel, maybe you missed it. I missed this the first three times I read this. Oh, my God. He crushes the voodoo doll. Oh, that's right. And it's 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 almost not visible in yeah. the comic. Well, everything's very murkily colored for the most part. Yeah, yeah. You and having could have saved it. Yeah. <laughs> and then the strangest setup of all time, he pretends <sighs> that there's a haunted house or he pretends to be interested in some old house and said, "Hey, let's go take a look." Yeah. And and do you want to do you want to bring it to its culmination? Oh, yeah, it's so great. They go inside and there's this tiny little man there with a long beard and he says, "Oh, you're I'm so glad you're here. I so rarely have company." And they want to start looking around the house and just exploring it. And for some reason, he's pretending, you know, that he he has to see more of this house. She's following him, but then he wants to go up into the attic. She will not follow him into the attic, of course, because you have to climb a ladder. And, you know, as we all know, women won't climb ladders. Sure. Yeah, he's got to do it. Yeah, right. So he goes up into the attic. Meanwhile, their host comes had he had like fallen asleep and then he he comes up to join them again and says don't go in the attic don't go in there oh it's too late he went into the attic and she starts calling to him to come down and the guy who comes down who's dressed just like him is the midget al low who he hired right his face his face double <laughs> his face double a dead ringer and she believes it's him and he he's kind of approaching her and trying to you know trying to make like he, he wants to hold her hand. I love you. I'm your husband. And she's running right. away. going. Right. Call my... Yeah. 
I'll call my lawyer. I'll start proceedings. I'll give you a million, Walter. Two million! And it works. So the, the two midgets together are saying, great, it worked. You know, our, the guy who hired us got what he wanted. And, hey, come on down, buddy. Your plan worked. And he has come down the ladder and is like a, an accordion. He's been smushed flat like an accordion. Yep. yep. Seemingly because of this whole curse on short people or getting, no, the voodoo doll getting smushed under the book. That's it. Right, right. And the first three oh times I read this, I thought it was that he'd been squished because he was in that small space. And I just thought it was just completely random. It's still pretty random. <laughs> yeah. But it's, what really sells it, this story is the, is the, that visual at the end where, he is he is crushed in such a sort of comical way, you know. He he is a physical accordion that's smushed. You can you know you yeah. can see uh, he's squat and you know looks like a toy, but it's drawn in a very detailed. This whole book is drawn by different artists, apparently. Well, that's what I want to talk about next, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, but they all manage to sort of have a very sort of middle of the road. I don't even know if I should call it mediocre. But just very, very transparent style. Not not going for a really deep effect. There's not a lot of weird angles. There's not a yeah. lot of um, expressive storytelling, which makes this stuff even stranger. I think. Of course, they're they're following you know John Stanley's layouts. Yes. To yes. some, I'm sure to a large degree because it's like if you if somebody does a layout for you, right, and you're. Right you know, a middle of the road artist, you're not going to express a lot of uh, in inventiveness perhaps. Although right. Tony Tallarico, who drew some of these stories says in the Bill Shelley book, yeah. not that he was not interviewed for the book, but he was, he did talk about this on the record that yeah. he, he swears he received a typed script, which is sort of inexplicable. Right. Right. Yeah. There's, you can't really, he, I mean, it, it was probably what, like 30 years or something after he did it. That's true too. It. So it, so other artists on this, I know Frank Springer drew, drew some stuff. I think there's a story about George Evans in here. Yeah, although that has been, if you go to, uh, oh, really? com- well, if you go to um, the Comics Archive, do you know that site? No, I don't know that one. It has a lot of public domain comics. There's a there's an English and American version. I think it's Comics Museum. Okay. Uh, and for, for, for one or the other. And on one of those, Michael Gilbert says mm. he knows that that is not George Evans. Well, that but, makes sense. It's like, what would George Evans, why would he be drawing something in this weird book? Right. Um, uh, he's definitely a more accomplished artist yeah. and had a career working for higher pay elsewhere, for sure. Yeah. I was confused by the story of the long wait. The guy in the wheelchair. You know, I think it's a <laughs> what you see is what you get story. I oh, think I it's he, yeah, that's a weird one. That one is most notable for ending with a man in a wheelchair <laughs> and a flying shark yes. <laughs> that we haven't seen anywhere else in the story. Another one where someone tells a story. Right. Uh, we don't get any horror visuals until the last panel. Well, I, I was, I was going to ask you if there's, if the confusion for you is why the shark is still after this guy. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we know. I think it's because he, this is a story where a millionaire reveals that, you know, in fact, the story he used to tell about 
being a victim of a shark attack and mm-hmm. living while a friend died was untrue. He actually was responsible for the friend being eaten by the shark. Right. And I think it's he's just haunted by the shark because he killed his friend. And so now the, the shark actually flies around his estate. <laughs> Flying shark. And, and he oh, wants, my God. I, he's decided it's time to die, and he just opens the door to let it in. Yeah. Uh, the it next is. time, the next time we would see a flying shark, I think, would be in an issue of Warlock by Jim Starlin. Oh, the space sharks! I totally forgotten that. It just okay. popped into my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll have, I'm going to look for that. I, I think the highlight of this book for me, and what I what I would love to see performed as a play someday. Oh my god, what a great idea! Is is the crazy quilt? Um, okay, which is it wouldn't be a full length play, be <laughs> <But laughs> short. But it really just features a woman freaking out in a psychiatrist's office about the weirdest dream she's had. Right. And it is the strangest dream. And a lot of these stories sort of share this, where it's sort of like someone says something and that thing is true. (laughs) And there's almost no logic ever between the two, which sort of makes them bad horror stories, but sort of makes them amazing sort of weird stories. Yes. And so, yeah, she has this dream that there's a man who is quilted. Mm-hmm. Uh, his whole body is quilted. And it was quilted by his grandmother who wants to turn her, the, the woman in the psychiatrist's office, into, he wants to have her quilted. And <laughs> and then it turns out, guess who she's talking to the whole time when we finally see the psychiatrist? It's... Uh. It's a quilted fellow, yes. um, and it's and she's fallen asleep. This patient has somehow fallen asleep in his <laughs> office. We don't know why she's fallen asleep. Maybe he's drugged her. I don't know. Yeah. And he waves his finger for his grandmother to come in and start quilting her. And it's just, it's got the best final panel I think in this whole. This it's whole amazing. Book. Yeah. I, I there are two short stories here I'm going to mention because they feature like sort of writing ticks of John Stanley's that I associate so closely with Little Lulu that it's really disconcerting here. Ah, let's hear it. Well, in the Goblin's Ball one-pager, there's somebody laughing. And in Little Lulu, you probably know this, but John Stanley had a really distinctive way of writing laughter, Uh which is, you know, ha, comma, ha, comma. It was always commas between the ha's. Right. And he does that here, and it's, like, so strange. And then in the very next story... Oops, I went the wrong way. <laughs> the very next story, the um, one about the old dog, where he's uh, saying, yes, I want to go for a hunt with old, old Butch. And right. the mom is saying, you know, no, he's he might be getting too old. But they call the dog and talk about the dog through the entire story, and it's never anything but old Butch. Old Butch. Right. right. Anyone else would say the dog or just Butch or something, but it's always old Butch, like 80 times. He... Yeah, I mean, one thing about Stanley that um, I think other writers have picked up on who who love him is this sort of idea of like of like a rhythm, um, yeah. and repetition. Because Stanley was not afraid of re- of repetition or mm. rhythm, um, which I think a lot of people would edit out. Like, oh, that's an overlap. You said that, or you said that too many times. But there's that story he did. There's a late little Lulu story he did called Foot. I think foot feet foot. Mm, yeah, um, kids in the in this neighborhood just get obsessed with the idea that if you say foot feet foot feet foot feet, the word ends up 
sort of meaning nothing or they just get amused by saying it over and over. Right. And it's like, it's both amazing and sort of irritating at the same time. <laughs> that story, the goblin's ball you just mentioned mm-hmm. is so, so this is a Dell comic and Dell sort of prided itself on being for families and <laughs> didn't need to be part of the comics code. And here's a story where I won't give it away, but it's only one page. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> but I mean, the, the upside of this story is, you know, there's a husband and wife talking, the kid, uh, their kid has been joking about playing touch football with goblins and they just think he's got a lively imagination. Suddenly someone calls. Well, they say they, you know, they want to use his head as a ball. Right. He says the god, yeah, the goblins want to use my head as a ball. And they, I mean, the kid isn't there. The mom says this and they, they both have a good laugh over that with the, with the, the commas in the ha's. And the phone rings, the dad talks to someone, and uh, the wife says, you know, what, what, what is it? You look terrible. And he just says, oh, the police called. There's a broken window down the street, Junior, and he just trails off. And she says, well, why did they have to call the police? And the husband just says, yes, they had to call the police. Yeah. And you're left to put the pieces together. Right. And, so to speak. And, right. you know, and... I, I sort of understand why Dell got some complaints because, like, that is a pretty gruesome story right there. There's, you know, a, a child's head being flung through a window, yeah, um, and it's sort of being the punchline to a to a one page comic is is pretty amazing. And yeah, I mean, Stanley Mutton, I don't know if he was in a dark place when he did it, but I think it, it there definitely was a sort of contrariness to his to his style, you know, for sure. And look, I think at this, this is a point in his career where he's sick of like, he was glad not to be working on some of the titles he'd done before because he was getting more and more editorial interference. Yeah. Yeah. He had that editorial job briefly and then quit it just to go back to writing at least in part because he didn't like being, you know, expected to be in meetings and being nice to people in the office. Right. Among other things. I mean, they also talk about like a, crazy long commute or whatever i've done it <laughs> yeah sure but you know so the the point is it's like he was definitely dealing with some stuff yeah i mean it's not the, the you know i've met i've met john stanley's daughter and you know mostly i i, I don't want to geek out on her or anything sure but i, I did say it, the context was such that we were talking about comics and i just said oh you know your father's Comics meant a lot to, mean a lot to me. I think they're really, you know, they're great, and and I learn a lot from from reading them. And mm-hmm. he, you know, he was his own guy. And 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 she's, we got to talking, and she definitely was like, yeah, he had a really dark sense of humor. I think we talked about, you know, both being from Irish families where there's a lot of dark humor and often dark sides to people's personalities. Oh wow! And I, I think that you know. Yeah, he was he was dealing with a lot of things, and and the frustration of what he'd been through, you know, he built the little Lulu comic book, which you could argue is like you know he didn't create the character or the property as it as it were, mm-hmm. but he built it into something that made thousands and thousands of dollars for Dell. Sure, uh, and and from what I understand, he probably you know in Bill Shelley's books and, and elsewhere, he probably seems like he probably talked to Western about continuing to write little Lulu 
after the split and mm. could he you know basically he wanted a raise and they just sent him out yeah. Uh, yeah so yeah i think he was pretty i think he was pretty bitter at this point on the other hand he kept working <laughs> for quite well, some time. He, he probably didn't know what to do after that and he felt like of course he had to keep making you know money and re- supporting his family yeah but, you know true. you look at not everybody has to end up in that same place. Carl Barks, I think, it could, you could make a case for him having done similar things and similar, made similar, making similar contributions to like yep. the Donald Duck cast of characters. And oh, absolutely! I, I don't yeah. ever get a sense of him being bitter about it. Really, I mean, I could be wrong. No, I think you're right. I think it's two very different personalities. Yeah one one saw fandom asking him, you know. Some like Stanley got asked sort of pretentious questions about, you know, or probably what he considered pretentious questions about the work he'd done. Mm-hmm. And it just made him angry, it seems like. Or it, 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 but at the same time, it sounds like from biograph what biographists say that he was very, he was very well read and he was very interested in what, you know, people who studied literature might think about his comics, but he couldn't, he couldn't handle the attention and on, on some base level. Yeah. Uh, Whereas Bark seems to really take the bull by the horns and just be like, yeah, I'm the guy, you know, yeah. uh, and it, it, the difference in personality can just make such a, I don't know, mm-hmm. such a difference in how you, how you see your next move. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Um, well, we're at about an hour. So uh, I thought maybe we could wrap up and, you know, is there anything else you want to add? I mean, we've talked a lot about John Stanley in this comic and stuff. It's amazing. The, it's it's an amazing comment. The one the things I'll say I'm just going to say something real quick because I know I just go off. But <laughs> what's what's great about this comic and a lot of John Stanley comics is that even though you do like I can I can imagine some people thinking this book sounds like kind of a downer and in no ways it is. Mm-hmm. But he is he's definitely an artist who is follow. Sounds pretentious again. Following his own voice. I mean, he is, I feel like he is up there with a lot of writers in that era who get a lot more credit than him. I, th- I compare him to Shirley Jackson when I talk to people, because I think there's a, wow. I think there's a similar, and she's got a dark side too. Oh, sure. For sure. It's like all dark side. Yeah. But, but <laughs> there's a similar sense of like, there's a real reality behind it. You know, there's uh-huh. a, there's a, there's an understanding of, and in, at times it's it's more bitter than it sh- than it could be with Stanley, but there's not a lot of cartoonists like this even today, you know, who have that ability. Uh, I think right. The Lulu stuff, though, every good American should be reading that. Yes, I, I have. Like I said, how many sets do they do from Another Rainbow? Five. Uh, I don't know. I have two. Yeah. I have all. I have all but one of them. I was huh? missing the first one, and then I realized I was so thrilled. I realized like a year ago that when Dark Horse did all their reprints, they just basically took each volume of the hardcovers and made them into a soft cover. That's what they did. Yeah. 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 So it was like, oh, I can just buy the, and they did an omnibus of the first three hardcovers uh, as a soft cover. So like, okay, I'm done. I got everything of little. Yeah. And John and Quarterly is reprinting. Not all Lulu's, but a large swath. Well, they did some of his Nancy stuff. Right. And, uh, Thirteenth going on eighteen and and Melvin uh, yes. Monster, which is particularly great. It's it's sort of the 
it's sort of the cousin to Tales from the Tomb in some ways, mm. but for kids. <laughs> yeah, it's more uh, like, you know, the monsters or something from what I can gather from the Bill Shelley book. I haven't read it, and I should, and I will. It's great, but it's, you know, it's Stanley all the way. Um, it feels very personal. Mm. Some people make the argument, I think it's true that on Little Lulu, he had to keep his dark side at bay a little bit. Right. Because that was sort of built into the to the assignment to the property right yeah. um, and i do think it's a it made for a wonderful series but these is one other horror book if anybody's looking for it is ghost stories from dell right. issue one and also reprinted as issue 18 <laughs> yeah so that was a, a series but he only did uh the first issue right yeah yeah and that has a story called the monster of dread end i believe that mm. is is um, in some ways like another, it's another little Lulu fairy tale come to hideous life. <laughs> right. so um, I'm going to, I'm going to make a comparison much like the TV series suspense. Alfred Hitchcock directed the very first episode and then never again touched oh, is it. Is that right? Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Uh, about yeah. a guy who's trapped in a basement with a time bomb he was making. Oh, wow. Uh, and that's that's not Alfred Hitchcock presents. No, he. I could go on about this for a while. Okay, <laughs> he, he directed twenty TV shows in total, and okay. about three or four of them were not for his own, you know, title series. Oh, all right. I'll I'll have to ask you offline about that. Yeah, no problem. All right, well, Chris, this has been great, and I really appreciate your coming on. I I loved it. Thank you for having me. I hope I didn't talk too much. No, this is. Terrific. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll do it again sometime. You know, you start thinking about another book you want to talk about for a few months down the road. All right. Great. Thanks. I'd be, I would love to. Thank you. Thanks for listening to One Shot Wonders. I'll be back next week with another One Shot comic. Meanwhile, hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, tell your friends, and go buy some comics. <laughs>